0: Hello, and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 20. This week, Brian and I are staying in the Gospels and looking at the book of Mark and specifically at the vine imagery in Mark chapter 12. We look at Jesus' usage of Isaiah to drive home the point he was making, how the original hearers would have heard it and what the opening verses of Mark 12 mean about the nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and their relationship with humanity. Before we get started, if you're enjoying the podcast, would you mind leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Facebook? If that's not your thing, would you mind sharing the post about this episode or another episode you've enjoyed on Facebook or just tell a friend? That works too. We'd love to expand our audience. All right, let's jump into this episode looking at the Parable of the Tenants and Mark chapter 12. Well, welcome back, Brian. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? It's good. It's good. back in the bistro yeah, here. Yeah, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> a little, co- yes. little coffee. and Highly coffeeed. How are you? We, okay. well, well, we just had breakfast. Yeah. With way too many carbs and, yeah. and insanely thick sliced bacon. <laughs> really good like, bacon. It was half a half the pig slice that <laughs> was delicious so we've eaten an enormous breakfast and i i'm almost to the point of over caffeinated so okay
1: well that's good this should be exciting
0: <laughs> my body feels excited you
1: know i keep thinking there's a reason we always come in saying oh we just ate this meal there's a reason we call this the bistro, bistro. <laughs> right well bistro yes of uh, course a place place together around a table and here we are we're around a table together today we're not always together that's kind of the little secret of this podcast we're not always in the same room but
0: yes but we today, today we are yep you are blessed by my presence
1: <laughs> something like that so <laughs> so i've been thinking i've Perfect. been wor- I've, wor- <laughs> I've been worried a little bit because you know i, I said i want to make sure john john is a place i gravitate toward book of revelation these these are places i gravitate to and i look at and I just don't want this just to become a podcast about the Gospel of John. We want to look at some other areas later. I'd say look for some time in the Old Testament. We haven't really looked at the Old Testament much yet, so we're going to look at that. But yeah. I thought we'd look at an account that's kind of been I've been thinking about lately in the in this in the Synoptic Gospels. I'm going to look at the Gospel of Mark particularly. Okay. This account does occur in all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay. And it's it's Mark chapter 12. It's the story of the—it's a parable that Jesus told about the absentee vineyard owner, let's call it, or something like that, or the tenants in the vineyard sometimes it's called, something to that effect. It's a parable that Jesus told. And, you know, I, I want to practice some of the things we've talked about. Let's put it in its narrative and historical context a little bit. So historically, this is a parable that Jesus tells during the last week of his life. We've talked before about the Gospels, and and you might remember what I've said, uh, Ryan, as we get later in the Gospels and as you get closer to Jerusalem, there's an increasing amount of conflict c- conflict with the Jewish leaders. And, and so we have Jesus entering. In fact, just before this, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's right there in the thick of things. And this is getting this is the last week of his life uh, his earthly ministry. Things are pretty tense at this point. Things are pretty tense at this point. And so so he makes this triumphal entry. And you might remember the crowds go out and they're they're using branches. they're using this language from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed if you who come comes in the name of the Lord. And remember Psalm 118, because we'll come to that a little bit later. But they're using this language in order to greet him. As the the coming Messiah, they're they're essentially saying we believe that you are this one that God is sending into the world. This is what the crowds are saying, right? So the religious leaders that had had this conflict with Jesus see this and they're they're really upset. Mm-hmm. Now there's a couple of interesting things that that Jesus does here, and I, I want to talk about the other one later on. But uh, you remember the triumphal entry? If you look back, just the chapter before this in Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. As he's coming in, he sees this fig tree that is not bearing fruit, and mm-hmm. he curses it. And then Mark does and here's the narrative part of this. Mark does this thing. I'm putting it kind of in its narrative context then. So he leaves that part of the story. And then they go in and they what what Jesus does then is this temple incident. And I want to talk about this another time. We typically call it the cleansing of the temple. And you know I call it the temple incident. Yep, yes. And I'll go ahead and give you the I'll give you the kind of the reason I call it that is the other way we can understand this is kind of a symbolic destruction of the temple that what for a period of time, Jesus is stopping worship in the temple. And so symbolically he's kind of saying this is coming to an end and there's uh, something else coming. Mm-hmm. Then Jesus, after this incident leaves and he goes back and then Mark resumes the story with the cursed fig tree and has Jesus talking about the meaning of this. So the, they go back and within the time they've been there, the, the fig tree has withered. Mm -hmm. So there's a miracle here, but then there's also kind of a symbolic meaning. And I'll go ahead and tell you, there's two main symbols. uh, I shouldn't say only two, but there's two major symbols in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, for God's people. Mm -hmm. One of them is a fig tree and the other is a vineyard. Mm -hmm. And so then we get to this parable of the vineyard that I think is an important one for us to look at uh, also. So that we have this parable of the vineyard here going on uh, in this place so th- there's a couple of reasons i think that israel well, why would you think that israel is is uh symbolized by a vineyard and by a um a fig tree
0: well i think it's about the the growing and producing fruit and it produces right. and continues the production right. process Just and some, it's important as a sustainer as well yeah
1: absolutely yeah wine was an important thing figs were important a part of the the diet there mm-hmm. I would say, just in in a practical sense, when you come into Israel, that and that's one of the things in the Old Testament you see. One of the promises is this is going to be a place where there's going to be fig trees, there's going to be vineyards. Mm-hmm. It, it's a land of plenty, and that's one of the ways it's described. In fact, you might remember uh when uh, this just came off the top of my head when the they sent the spies in
0: so, some, some giants big and tall some saw grapes and clusters fall
1: R- right oh, well, oh, you man. might remember
0: they, they carried came back about the clusters the these grapes.
1: clusters that were huge they were so big mm-hmm. they were carried but you know on a pole between them so it was a land of plenty is kind of what that that stands for so here's this and yeah you know, like you said then you remember that song i do yeah okay yeah. Twelve <laughs> men went to spy on Cain, and ten were bad and two, two, were two were good. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So there's a, there's okay, a, well, I just, I a just sud-scope. wondered. No, I, I know that song. You're the music ministry part that's of this podcast. Flannel,
0: I mean, that's flannel graph <laughs> material songs right there.
1: Well, and I remember, I remember a flannel graph of these two, two of these spies carrying on a pole between them, this huge, huge cluster, cluster of light grapes. Okay? Yes. So it was a part of the way that God was talking about the plentifulness of this land, you know, land flowing with milk and honey. It was a, it was a good land. But then, like you said, then symbolically it comes to stand for God looking for this fruit to be produced. So let's let's read a little bit of Mark chapter twelve, okay? Starting in verse one, uh, just read uh, for me, if you will, about uh, the first just the first verse actually. Let's okay. start there.
0: Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower.
1: Okay. Now here's the here's the thing, and this is. Again, one of those things that we're always saying, let's look for, you know, how we understand this. Let's look for a little bit, you know, dig a little bit into this. So we could read this story, and I think most of us know this parable. We could understand this parable anyway. And I'll go ahead and just tell you, you know, the short version is that that there's tenant farmers, and uh, the owner of the vineyard sends to get his rents. They beat the servants. They kill some of the servants that he sends and cast them out. And then finally he sends his son. Whom mm-hmm. they also kill, and and we could read that, and we could say, oh, this is Jesus talking about the way that he is going to be rejected and going to be killed. So we understand, we understand this part of it. But when Jesus the I, I, that language again, read read verse one again, because I, I I've kind of messed it up
0: already. But, yeah, you did.
1: But that <laughs> that language,
0: uh-huh.
1: uh, it, just read verse one again.
0: Okay, uh, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and
1: moved to another place. So what we have going on here is Jesus' authority has been questioned by these Jewish leaders. And so he starts with a story, and there's going to be language here that's going to immediately sound familiar to these people who had memorized the Old Testament, these these religious leaders who knew their Old Testament. Mm-hmm. and And so the parallel I want us to look at here is Isaiah chapter 5. Okay. Isaiah chapter 5. I'm um, there. And just read about, uh, just read the first couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 5. Okay.
0: I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted with it the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit.
1: So what, parallels do you see here what what do you notice that's similar
0: uh well the vineyard just generally clearing the stones yep
1: and watchtower probably even goes along with building that wall so jesus says he built a wall around it when you clear stones you still see this sometimes in in some areas of of the country in the united states for example you clear a field of stones and then you put those and build a fence Fence. around Mm -hmm. it so
0: yep uh the the watchtower yep um, we haven't got to the wine press part. And well, heaven. it
1: says it dug a wine press yep. uh, in verse one there. So all of those are parallel. So I think this language, they would have understood, okay, he's he's referring back to this idea of Isaiah chapter five. Mm-hmm. Now, this th- we call this the song of the vineyard sometimes in, in Isaiah five. And, and this passage is really about a, a, a judgment on God's people because they are not being the kind of people that God had called them to be. This was a judgment passage in this prophet, in, in the prophet Isaiah the the leaders would have recognized this. And so they they hear this, and then so Jesus is connecting, I'm saying, and this is one of those things that we can kind of look for, this parable. So what it says here is that in that case, he was looking for good grapes and it yielded only bad fruit. Kind of reminds us of that fig tree that I just mentioned a minute right. ago. He was yeah. looking for fruit, found none. Cursed it. So yeah. So let's go ahead and read in Isaiah 5 kind of the end of the story. So because this is something that would, I think, Jesus was intentionally calling to people's mind. So go ahead and read, um, re- go ahead and read three through seven.
0: Okay. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of
1: distress. So, like I said, you see the judgment here. And what he's referring to here, in Isaiah's context, he's referring to the time when the people are going to be taken away into captivity. Mm-hmm. Now, the Assyrians come, and of course, the people repent, and, and only the northern kingdom is destroyed at that point. Mm-hmm. But then the Babylonians at a later period of time come because the people continue to be unfaithful. They continue to not yield good fruit, and so it's, they're, they're taken away. So this is the judgment that, that is made in, in Isaiah. So going back to, into Jesus, if he's referring back to this, this is going to immediately call this to mind. And this is where I'm talking about You know, when we talk about knowing these stories well so that you know in the same way that the people who heard Jesus story initially would have made these connections that we're able to make these connections as well that's and you can see it linguistically you can see it thematically here in the, in the connections and so that's that's again what I'm talking about this idea of of looking for these connections so back in mark 12 we've only read verse 1 so far let me read a little bit further here then uh, verse 2 and following it says that at harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants, and, and literally I'll say here, just linguistically, this doesn't make a huge difference, but it says in due time, which the NIV, I'm reading the NIV here, they've interpreted as harvest time, probably the correct interpretation here. In due time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of their vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them he beat, others they killed. So to this point then, uh, let me just say a couple things. First, the concept of tenant farming is probably something that would have been familiar to the people, and, and most of us are probably familiar with it to some extent. I know my my family has the history of this. My, my grandparents on my mother's side were tenant farmers at one point, where they they didn't own the land, but they farmed it, and then they would, of course, were expected to have a percentage, whatever the portion that was required was to be sent, you know, to the owner, uh, and, and you know, it's it, that's a concept we're familiar with. So, when the owner sends for these tenants, here, here's basically the primary point I think that Mark's getting at is the these tenants are acting in an irresponsible. And a, kind of a surprising way, you know. The expectation—they're not the owners; they are the they're the tenants. And and so it's almost like they think they're getting away with something by keeping for themselves what rightfully belonged to God. Mm-hmm. Okay, or <laughs> I said God, but the owner—the owner. Yes, I'll go ahead. I guess I gave away the ending there. The the, <laughs> the owner of the of the vineyard is is God. So these these leaders of Israel, I think, you know, Jesus speaking kind of in a judgment against them. Isaiah's kind of a judgment against the entire nation and their inability to follow him. Jesus is kind of honing this in on the leaders mm-hmm. and saying, you know, you've been given a responsibility. Same kind of thing we see with him using the image of shepherd in other places. You've been given this responsibility and you have um, neglected it. You're misusing it for your own gain mm-hmm. rather than thinking about why, you know, why God has given you this responsibility. So he sends a series. And I think it's important that we have this series of, of servants what we typically understand here is that Jesus is talking about prophets. the prophets, right? Mm-hmm. That God continued, like Isaiah, God continued to send these messengers to say, "You need to pay me the fruit, you know, that is owed to me as the owner of this vineyard," and yet they rejected the prophets. There were prophets that were, you know, un- killed, killed. They were misunderstood. They were. They were not listened to. Cast out. Cast out. And so this is what we see happening with these servants. So Jesus is kind of recounting this period of time of Israel's unfaithfulness. And yet when the prophets, when God would send a prophet, raise up a prophet, and I always say this, prophets only need to be raised up in times where the leaders of God's people are not doing what they're called to do. If, if for example, the in, in the Old Testament, if the priests, high priests, uh, kings, if, if they were doing the things that were pleasing God and leading the people in this way, there'd be no need for a prophet. Prophets typically come. Well, think of some of the examples when you see prophets arising in Israel. Mm-hmm. You see uh, King Ahab's a good example. When Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen, yeah. this is when Elijah comes on the scene, right? And, yeah. and he's the one that has to speak to them. Samuel, even at an earlier period of time, we see him coming when Eli is the and his, his sons and are his sons and so this is a time of crisis in, in, for God's people that's when a prophet needs to arise Isaiah you know he, he's his early ministries during the reign of King Ahaz um famously of course in chapter three into into the reign of King Uzziah and then and then we have Ahaz and so so here he is you know in this time where again the king is going away from what God wants for his people uh, and the people are following that and so this is when a prophet arises so Jesus, again, in this parable, I think, is kind of recounting this history. Again, we could have understood, we can understand this parable uh, without that background, but I think that background just kind of you know reinforces it, maybe makes it a little bit richer. So now here's, here's where we go. Verse 6 then, this is Mark chapter 12, verse 6, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So they kill the the owner's son, throw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Both in Isaiah and also here in Mark, notice there's this question. What will he do? Yeah. Well, in, in, in Isaiah, the question was, um, what more could I have done for my vineyard, right? And so there's this kind of, these parables that end with questions are kind of inviting the listener to recognize the judgment that's being, <laughs> that's being made there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and, and so in Isaiah, he says, what more can I do for my vineyard? And he's inviting people to say, well, you did every, you know, you dug it out, you made a watchtower, you put a wall around it, you did everything you could. And that's when Isaiah says, he's talking about his people. You know, this vineyard is Israel. The vine is Jacob. So there's that idea, I think, that we have. And then the same kind of question here then is, what will this owner do? And then his answer is, he will come and kill those tenants, give the vineyard to others. And then he quotes uh, this passage from Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 was one that was very strongly connected to Passover. I've already mentioned that that this is what the people are shouting during the time of the triumphal entry, they're, they're using Psalm 118. Mm-hmm. This was an important passage during, of course, it's the feast of Passovers when Jesus, this, this final week in Jesus minister, earthly ministry. So he quotes 118, the stone, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Um, and so this is, oh, and I should have, should have mentioned one more thing. I'll, I'll go back to it in a minute. So the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone. This, this passage that we hear quoted a lot in connection with Jesus' death, it's the idea that even though he's not going to be recognized, Jesus is not going to be recognized, that really God is using him as the foundation stone or the cornerstone on which he's going to build this building. That's what's going on here in this, in this place and in this context. And then here's the interesting response to this. Verse 12 says, The chief priest teachers of law and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they recognized this. They knew it was going on. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So they were able to see in this parable, uh, you know, at least for a period of time, they were able to understand that Jesus is making an accusation against them of failing to do the kind of things that God had called them to do. And so I think that's what's going on in this this place, in this context. So now— um, I think there's a couple things that we can do here. Uh, do you have questions or, or comments in regard to that?
0: No, I you know I think it's just it. It's not even the message. It you know I think it's tied back to it's tied back to Isaiah, but also as a prophet and what the message that Isaiah was bringing at the time. Yeah, right. I mean like it's not just oh, it's an Old Testament passage. We've heard this before. It's like the the message in Isaiah was tied to judgment. Then right. for them as well. So it's this it's this concept of He's repeating it, but the same concepts of judgment are coming. I
1: think Jesus is setting them up, in a sense, to hear this judgment because he's connecting it with this with this Old Testament passage that they would have known and they would have been familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's that's exactly right. Um, so what's the what's the application of this for us? I think there's a couple of different ways that we can see this, or, or not ways, but there are a couple of different things I think we can learn from this. Uh, the judgment. Context is pretty easy for us to recognize. So, what? Let me ask you. You're always asking me. So, what? What lesson does that give to God's people if they look at this time where the leaders of God's people had rejected, you know, what He had said? And, you know, judgment come on them. What would be the the lesson or the message from that? Would you say?
0: Well, uh, I mean, I think for me, how I'm thinking about this, and this goes back to an episode we had with John Weatherly, yeah, um, where he talked about, you know, we often think of. And Luke the Pharisees or something are the guys with the black hats right like that's how, that's how being painted but they were like the religious elite sure. of the day and they were keeping these mm. things and then Jesus is coming and saying hey yeah. you' you're, I'm bringing judgment on you and so I mean I think it's this moving beyond the actions and it's to the heart of the of the people and the leaders right. like the application is you, you know it's not just the way that you act it's how you it's your ethos of right. uh, of how you're how you are?
1: I, I want. I think you. I think you got a really good application there. I'm just going to and and I'm just going to make one point here. Look at Mark chapter 12. And you mentioned the Pharisees, and this is where again, when we read these things quickly, we often just, like you said, it's all the bad guys, right? We don't right. we don't pay attention. Who does it say that that responds here in this in this case? The chief priests, chief priests, the teachers, teachers of all, the law, and, and the the elders. elders. So this is a different group. This mm-hmm. is more that kind of Sanhedrin, that group that has connection to the temple. Gotcha. And the only here is the only reason I would, mentioned. Would there be Pharisees in this group as well? There could be in the in the Sanhedrin. Okay. But here's what I want you to notice in verse 13, though. And <laughs> we didn't we didn't really go here. So you've mm. been having re- read verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. Later
0: they said some of the Pharisees
1: and Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians mm-hmm. ask him this question. Now that's see again. We we read those words and it's just like the blah 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 and the blah blah blah, right? <laughs> Maybe. But, but, no, it's true. But we just like, okay, and there's another
0: group of people. Yeah, another, another, we we move on to the question. Yeah, these are the bad context.
1: So, Pharisees and Herodians typically would not have much to do with one another, right? So, it tells who the Herodians are. Herodians are those who are connected to Herod, right? And Herod's power came ultimately from Rome, Rome. right? Mm -hmm. And he's the one who is king of the Jews. (laughs) You know, literally, that's his title. You know, he's, Mm -hmm. he's the king of the Jews. He would have been under the Roman emperor, but he would have had the responsibility for this region. Mm-hmm. to make sure that it was, um, you know, and, and there are various Herods and people within that family mm-hmm. who, who rule throughout the New Testament period. It's not always Herod the Great. Of course, Herod the Great is is dead, dead by the time we get to, uh, you know, early early in Jesus' life.
0: And so what some, um, let me just ask you a question on
1: this. Would some of the Herodians
0: also be, like, connected with the Sadducees then as well?
1: That would be a close, that would make more sense okay. than Herodians and and, and Pharisees, so Pharisees. Yeah, Okay. okay? Okay, so the Herodians are looking to Rome for their power, right? And the Sadducees are kind of that that established power. As well, the Pharisees are <laughs> be careful here, but they're more the populist, right? They're yeah. more the ones that are out. Um, and, and so their With power. The people their powers in the synagogue. And, and that's actually, I'm getting into a little bit more than I intended, but when the temples destroyed in AD 70, Sadducees disappear and the Pharisees are able to continue because they're they're spread out throughout not only just the, the nation of Israel but th- beyond the borders mm-hmm. there are synagogues at this point in north africa there are syna- synagogues in, well everywhere that the jews the diaspora we call it everywhere the jews had gone they had set up these synagogues and the Pharisees oh, gotcha, tended sure. to be the leaders in those in those synagogues gotcha. and the sadducees power tended to be centered in jerusalem at the temple the capital in and the temple yeah now, again, I didn't mean to talk about this, but here's the fascinating thing. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, these, you know, what they would say is that, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Yeah. You know, and and enemies make strange bedfellows sometimes. So Pharisees and Herodians wouldn't normally have anything to do with each other, but they come together in order to ask Jesus about paying the taxes to Caesar.
0: Mm.
1: Now, here's the fascinating thing about that question is it provides a trap because those two groups are going to answer that question very differently. Right. Caesar is the head of the Roman empire. And so the Herodians are going to say, well, of course you pay your taxes. Right. Whereas the Pharisees are going to say, well, we are being oppressed by Rome and we're no friends of, of Rome. Uh, and and therefore to pay taxes means you're no, you're not the Messiah, right? You're not this, this leader that God is sending in their mind to, to liberate us from, to, to to liberate us from this Roman oppression. So, you know, again, I only stopped you just just for that point because you're talking about the Pharisees, but it really is, is a different group. group. Okay, and he's going to address the Pharisees in just a moment in a, in a different way. So I think I think you know again, this is a heightening of this. There are several narratively. Let's talk about the narrative here. Mark puts several. They're called sometimes conflict narratives in a row. Here uh, we sometimes call this Great Day of Questions, where where it seems like all these different groups are trying to trap Jesus and Jesus responds to them, you know, and shows basically that I'm I'm showing you and sending you in a different way. Mm-hmm. So that's one application back what you said. I think you're you're right. We so here's kind of the way I might put it is we have to be careful to make sure that we are understanding God's will. <laughs> Not imposing our will or what we understand God's will to be upon him, mm-hmm. but we need to put ourselves in a position where we're bearing the fruit that he wants us to bear, if if you will, rather than trying to do, you know, we're, we're seeking his kingdom rather than building our own kind of thing. And, and again, they were really trying to take, you know, the vineyard owners or the vineyard tenants, I should say, in the parable were trying to take what was rightfully not theirs for their own benefit Mm-hmm. rather than recognizing what the owner wanted and uh, you know I think when we come to thinking of our role within God's kingdom, it's important for us to think in in those terms. The other thing is this another lesson well let me ask you this what do you think that the way the owner acts in this okay so so, Think back in Isaiah, the back, background there, he says, What more could I have done for my vineyard? Right? Mm-hmm. I, I provide I made a beautiful. I, and it's kind of like for the people, I've given you this land. You know, it's 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 a beautiful land. You know, you were worried about the Canaanites and all this stuff. I've given you this place. What more could I have done for you? Mm-hmm. And, and then we have this idea, and and some people say the owner's almost, it doesn't make sense that he goes and we didn't get his rents. You know, what does he do? He he keeps sending people.
0: Yeah, it's what is a definition of an insanity? You know, yeah, do, keep, the, do same the same thing, thing over and over again, expecting a different result?
1: And, and so I, I guess we could see it in that way, but what lesson would, would we perhaps draw from that, would you say, about—
0: Well, God's mercy.
1: Okay, I think we and see— Grace it, and mercy. I think we see an, an image of the, of the mercy of—yeah, mercy is the word I would use here. I, I think we see an image of God's mercy in this, that he can—God's patience, we might say, that he continues— you know, he was rejected in the most strong terms, and some people make a point when you, when they're writing about this, well, what did he expect to happen when he sent his son? You know, but, but the idea that he was willing to do everything that's necessary in order to try to draw these people, you know, back into right relationship, let's, let's use that word, even after they killed the, his servants, the prophets, let's say, mm-hmm. then he sends his son and so I think, again, it shows us something about his mercy and his willingness to, to do whatever is necessary in order to try to uh, provide, you know, what, what is necessary for his people is, is another message here that I think, I think that we see in this. But then, of course, you know, ultimately in its historical context, uh, what it is is for the chief priests, they understand that they are being, they're being called to task and, and they, it, again, just heightens this conflict to the point that they wanna do away with Jesus. But they when it says the crowd's here, and, and that's really the whole point. Sometimes we miss this in the Easter story. That's the whole point of Judas. They need to find Jesus in a not public setting. Right, because the they rec- people. They recognize that he is very popular with the people. And so if they try to arrest him in, in public, if they try to, to do this in public, there's gonna be a riot. Uh, you know yeah. that's that's what they fear anyway, and so uh, so they have to find him in a place. And so Judas is the one who knows where they would go in private to the Mount of Olives in order to to pray. And so he's the one who takes him and leads him there. Anyway. All right,
0: I got a question for you. Sure. And you know the answer this because you you know more history and uh, some early rabbinic literature. How did those in Jesus' time mm-hmm. look back on the prophets and what the nation
1: of Israel had done to them? Did they say like we have done these people wrong? they would have seen that. They would have seen that. But of course we all, it's like when we read a Bible story and I think, I think this is, this is actually a good lesson for us. We always want to put ourselves in the position of the good guys in the, in the Bible stories. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think when they would have read it, they would have said, oh, but we're not like that. That's those, the way the peop- that people, that's the way that the leaders used to be. But now look at us. We're we're the ones who are truly leading Israel in the correct way. You, you get yeah. what I'm saying. So I don't think they would have identified with it. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying what you are, even what you're doing right now in mm-hmm. rejecting me, is you are putting yourself in this role uh, of being against me. And that's why, you know, the first application I wanted to mention was this idea of judgment and us being careful. To think, you know, we want to immediately put ourselves in. Oh, yeah, we're doing. We're it. not
0: doing that. We are,
1: we're doing the Lord's work, and I think we need to ask ourselves: Are we are we being true to the owner of the vineyard, right? Or are we uh, trying to just aggrandize our our own selves? You know.
0: Yeah. Well, it's 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 the you know the rhetorical question. Well, what if Jesus came today? Yeah. What What how, would we? How would we respond? We, to how him? would we respond? And yeah. yeah. oh well, we would know it, and we would. Accept it right. and be there'd be no problem. So I just I just wondered how those you know, the yeah. the chief priests and the elders looked back on that and kind of saying, like, oh, they were good and we recognize they were from God. And then you know, thinking I'm just trying to envision how they pictured Jesus in their context, this mm-hmm. guy who's performing miracles and, yeah. and seeing these things and kind of going, Is this <laughs> I'm trying to think about the cognitive dissonance to kind of go yeah. He's oh he's not a prophet though.
1: Well, and that's that's exactly the kind of conversations that we see going on. And John, I think it is. Of course, it's always John to, it's for always me. Always
0: John, but, to John.
1: <laughs> but there's a statement, um, you know, because because he's saying things that they're taking as blasphemy, right? Because right? he's saying he's saying, Well, no, you know, I'm not just the king. I'm I'm really equal with God. Yeah, and they're going blasphemy. But on the other hand, the response is, you know when the Messiah comes, what more could he do than this man has done? You know, he's opened the eyes of the blind, raised the dead, you know, uh, he, he's caused the lame to walk, all these things that Isaiah prophesied. What more could the Messiah do, right? So there's some people who are persuaded by that, and yet there are others because he does not fit their paradigm of what it is that God is doing in their context, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, take that and put it in our in our, you know, because it does not fit that, well, that can't be from God, right? He doesn't matter what he does, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's the thing, you know, the idea of the signs, you know. And, and I've said this to people before today. You talked about, well, what if Jesus came today? And, you know, I've heard people say, well, if we could see miracles the same way that we saw them in Jesus' day, then I would be a believer. But, you know, mm-hmm. why do we have these stories about what Jesus did back then? And, and my point is, well, you know, the problem is with with your point of view is— The scriptures make clear that even those who were eyewitnesses to the sign didn't necessarily believe who he was. They saw these things, and yet, because of their own heart and because of their own uh, stubbornness—I don't know what all you want to say—they're setness in their ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's a lesson for us there to be—you know—it's a fine line between. I think we need to be open-minded and listening, and willing to to hear. Uh, We have this tendency to, you know, and even uh, cognitive scientists have showed us this, the confirmation bias. Oh, yeah. Right? That we need to be self-aware enough to see areas where we are perhaps not looking at the evidence completely, this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So
0: Yeah, well, and I guess this is my question. You know, we talk about this as a podcast all about the Christian faith, and, you know, the, like, application here. How do we make sure that we're not blinded? Yeah. You know I I mean? Because I I think— it, That's uh, great. We
1: question. all can have blind spots. Yeah.
0: You know how do we? Well, what, how does a community make sure the community doesn't right. have? blind spots? I can think of spot. a couple
1: of things. Well, you, you, you give me a couple of years too as you think about it. But my own blind spots are. <laughs> yeah, let's have a series of. Uh, them if well, you well but, I don't know uh, if
0: you know this, Brian, but I
1: don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you learn Greek, no. But the <laughs> the uh, the no the I think a couple things is one you mentioned this idea of Christian community and we need to understand that the kingdom of God is much bigger than people who look like us and think like us and sound like us and have a similar kind of culture than us. So there's a couple ways I, I think this is important is to be in conversation with Christians uh, who have other perspectives, to be in other, you know, and I'm talking primarily cultural. That's one of the reasons, and, and there's lots of debate about short-term mission trips, and we haven't talked too much about this at this point, but, you know, I've belonged to a mission organization in the past. I worked with a mission organization in the past that had short-term trips, and, and one of the things that, that we were very intentional about uh, that I, I think you need to be careful for, ch- a short-term mission trip isn't just about us going down and helping those poor people in those other places. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, one of the primary goods, if, if you will, one of the primary beneficial things that come out of these short-term trips is the ability to have interaction with believers in other cultural contexts. And we can learn from one another. We use this phrase all the time in that mission organization, mutual transformation. We believe these trips are mutually transformative. And again, as Americans, mm-hmm. we kind of have some time. You know, I'm speaking a little superiority complex. Well, and, and you know, we, we kind of feel like, oh, we have the tools to help people. You know, we can mm-hmm. go down and help. And, and there are things we can do. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there's also a way in which we can learn from one another in those contexts. And we can begin to really see... What, what is crucial to the Christian faith? What is important in, in these contexts? You know, one of the things in the past year or so, when we've had, you know, for a while could not meet together, it was very difficult. And, and different. let me say, different churches made different decisions about this. And I, and I said from the beginning to our congregation, all of us, we need to respect the decisions that other congregations are making because we're all in these different kinds of contexts. But you go, you know, people were talking about, well, I, I really just don't feel like we're worshiping unless we're together in the building. And I'm thinking, if you go around the world, there are people who don't have buildings. Mm-hmm. They're meeting together under the trees, you know, or mm-hmm. or in the gardens or, you know, in homes. And are we somehow saying that's not, quote-unquote, church? You know, right. again, like, I, don't like that, to, that, I don't like to use church in that way, right? right. Going to that church. That God
0: can't meet us in these under the tree or...
1: Right, as a community where they're gathering in these places. And I think, again, that's something we can learn from one another to see how, you know, in some ways... What we feel like we need, you know, the projectors and the and the you know electrical instruments and the fog machines and 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 you know we yes uh, I'm sorry mm. I'm getting a little little carried away here, but and again in in con- it, we have to think about our context and context I'm not criticizing that either but I'm saying we need to also recognize that that there is legitimate worship in other other forms and other contexts so so I would say this kind of idea of being in conversation with other people taking opportunities that we can to live life with people who are different than we are, whatever that looks like, whether it's a short-term trip or intentionally long-term building relationships, probably even better, friendships with people who are different than we are, maybe even speak different languages we, than we do so we can, we can understand better. Those are a couple of ways, I think, that we can be aware of our own biases. I think even just learning about uh, history and, and, and other people, I think, can, can be a good thing. Um, you know, it never hurts to pray and ask God to show us those areas in our life where we may have blind spots also. But what what do you think? Do you have any ideas or any thoughts on, on some of that?
0: Uh, oh Gosh, I haven't learned Greek yet, so I don't know. <laughs> um, well, once you get that, you'll figure it all once, out. Once so. I learn Greek, the whole world just falls in place. Um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, engaging in those conversations and—, yeah. and, and you know, I've I've been on mission trips. We talked yeah. about when I was in Ukraine in, in 2005, and you saw yeah. how the church yeah. existed in a very yeah. different cultural context, and a context that had come out of some really hard, yeah. you know, some hard times there uh, on, when it was the USSR. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, seeing that, and I mean, that was challenging for my faith yeah. in some of those ways, and how I look at what i do here and and i've been in poland and i've seen things there and that's very uh, much more western but it's still it's this different cultural context and so i think yes like you said learning from others and i guess one of my things is and i and maybe you can talk about this because i think how do how do we discern some of that stuff sometimes Mm -hmm. because it i'm not saying we have the corner on the market on everything, you know, it's like it's this community coming together that the, right. the church and, and Revelation, we see every tribe, mm-hmm. tongue, and nation right. in there. How do we make sure, though, as, as we bring all this together, that we're having an honest view? You know what I mean? Like Because right. there are cultural contexts that lean a certain way, but maybe it pushes it too far,
1: theology too far in a direction. Well, I, I think, I don't know that we're ever going to have an honest view. <laughs> yeah. So I think the the main thing there is having the humility to, to recognize that my view is not equivalent the, to truth. The right? view. That I am I am seeking, you know, so so again, for me, Scripture is a very, very important part of this. I'm seeking to understand what God is doing both in history and also in the present. I want to have eyes that are open to that. I think having brothers and sisters speaking into me, even, you know, those with whom I disagree is an important part of that being in dialogue and i'll say that's a, a thing that we've lost i think you mentioned this idea of ukraine and and let me just give you one example maybe that will help is i sometimes hear i try to be pretty positive about the future of the church right yes you do but but there are times where people will oh our our attendance is down you know 10% or whatever and you think you know there are christians who like you said have gotten through and and today are going through persecution Mm-hmm. But have gotten through very difficult times, and the church has survived.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. the
1: church has been victorious in those elements. Yeah, and I again, I think just even changing our perspective about what it means for us to do God's work, mm-hmm. right, um, is not always about the big productions, but it's about you know, uh, oh, I think it was um, Dallas Willard. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, he says the kingdom of God is something that passes from one human heart to the other. You know, at at the basis, it's it's a discipleship kind of movement
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, where we're you know what whatever kind it's not it's not big groups assimilating. It's more one heart sharing the gospel with another, and that heart responding. And so uh, I think you call it a revolution in the human heart. I have to look up that reference, but but uh, you know that I think to keep that in mind that what we're doing is is more about the the people right around us. Than these big kind of things, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, trying to keep that proper perspective, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, uh, also to make sure that we're on board with what God's doing. So,
0: yeah. And you, you mentioned like reading books, histories, and understanding. Yeah. Like the, you know, I, I've been reading. I'm not making any comments on current culture, but I've read stuff about like how the church yeah. thrived in communism. Yeah, you know, and like, and it's these small groups, and it was people to people, yeah. and it was like in these small. There was no production, there was yeah. no building. that was. We meet here. We had and it's encouragement and it's meals right. and it's and it's going that way and uh, learning from them and right. seeing their faithfulness
1: in that and well, you know there's a church in in Cuba today there's the churches in Cuba that you know the churches in these places and and now in North Africa in some of these places I have you know students who are serving in in countries where they they can't be there officially as missionaries yet they are sharing the gospel with people in in very difficult circumstances. And so, you know, I think I think all those, you know, to, to remember that the church advances even in those difficult contexts, you know.
0: And all this is to keep our eyes on what yeah. God's mission is. Yeah. You know, like right. so we're not the the tenants that keep pushing away and thinking, yep. you know, we're seeking our own uh seeking our own advances, but I we're seeking right. the advances of yeah, God. And so right. um yeah, very good. Okay. Anything else you want to add to that?
1: I don't think so. I think that's about all I had with that today. I just thought it'd be good to look at something different than John for a while and yes. and, and bring, you know, even though we're still talking, about, I guess, about the temple and about, you know, those kind of yeah. I- images, but the image of Vineyard. Now, I will mention that. Just if you haven't gone back and listened to the, some of the stuff we did on the temple in the Gospel of John, that the temple itself had this, this relief of it. the vine on it, which again stood as kind of a symbol for Israel. You know, it was something that they would have seen in Jerusalem. It's something that, that they would have thought about on a regular basis. And I was going to say this as well. I forgot, I forgot two other things. <laughs> um, one is that last time it says owner of the vineyard, the word there is actually kurios, which is the Lord of the vineyard. And and I think, again, Jesus is kind of bringing this in to to make sure we understand that the Lord is the owner of the vineyard. Uh, but the other thing is this. We are familiar with with depending on what part of the country we live in if we live in the United States or someplace else we may have seen vineyards you know there's some places where vineyards are more plentiful than others Israel is one of these places Galilee particularly is one of these places where that's that's a part of the culture same way you know we're right now in a place where you see corn and beans right and maybe <laughs> a little wheat yeah there it was vineyards you know that that's one of the main things uh, olive groves uh, fig Trees. These, these are the things that you would have seen. Uh, and so it would have been, ve- you know, vineyards would have been very familiar to you. And so I think Jesus is again drawing from the familiar in order to make this point. So very good. Well, Brian, thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Till next time. Yep. Yeah, talk to you soon. Uh, bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Next week, Brian and I are taking a look at some recent archaeological discoveries that help enlighten the stories and message of Scripture. We hope you'll join us for that. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com, as well as sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch, but also to get some exclusive content we are working on right now. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.